0: what's up guys welcome back to the xu podcast episode 59 this week i'm joined by tim benito and tim wears many hats in the music industry which is why i was so excited to get him on to talk he is the owner and co-founder of NV concepts which has produced and booked live events all throughout new england and the east coast he is the managing partner of big night talent as well as the vp of talent at big night in boston So if you've been to a dance show or been to Big Night Live or The Grand or any of their venues, Tim is one of the guys who is in charge of booking these DJs. The biggest names in the world, the biggest artists in the world, Tim has crossed paths with basically anyone in the dance music industry. You name it, I'm sure Tim has crossed paths with them. And he's also been able to form some true friendships with artists that someone like myself or anyone who's been into dance music looks up to as pioneers of the genre and dance music in general. Talking Hardwell, Avicii, Tiesto, again, you name it, Tim has been able to form relationships and friendships with so many of these amazing artists. So getting him on the show, having him tell me about, you know, really hitching his wagging and taking a chance on an artist like Hardwell or Avicii early on in their careers, 2011, before even the EDM wave really took you know its full strength so he shares some amazing stories that i absolutely just loved hearing i could have talked to them for another couple of hours and he also gives some really cool behind the scenes insight to dance music world and going to these shows as fans we go to these shows and we get to experience them And we don't really have to worry about the promotion and the hospitality and the travel and the booking that goes into it all and tim share some insight into what that is like so absolutely love this conversation i'm really excited to share it with you guys and if you're ever in boston and you're looking for a dance show look no further than any of the big night venues i spent two years there and i went to big night live the grand you know way more times than i'd like to admit but loved it every time, and they do an amazing job up there. So without further ado, enjoy the conversation I have with Tim on this episode. As always, give us a follow on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok, at x underscore u underscore pod. Here's my conversation with Tim Benito. All right, guys, XU Podcast. Welcome back to another week, another episode. And today I am joined by someone who is deeply immersed in the world of dance music and has been for a while. He is the owner and co founder of NV Concepts, which has been running live events all throughout New England and the East Coast. He works at Big Night Entertainment and Big Night, just the company in Boston, which is all over the place. He's the VP of talent which handles booking for the venues. He is a managing partner of Big Night Talent, uh, which is the artist management side of things. Also does some partnership in Big Night Sports. He wears many hats. Tim Benito joins me on the podcast. Tim, stoked to have you here, man.
1: Appreciate you having me, brother. Yeah, you did your homework. <laughs>
0: I did. I did. You, there There was a lot to look at.
1: Sometimes, sometimes I don't even know all the things I do. So that was that was pretty impressive that you, uh, you nailed those things, because there's a lot of different um, subsections of the things I do. So congrats on that. That's good. I'm
0: glad. Yeah, I can give you a little refresher of what you do. Well, that's kind of my first question and where I want to start. Whenever I have people on the podcast, I like getting some backstory. And for you, you wear all these incredible hats and have been in this world for a long time now. So I'd really like to take it back to the beginning of when you even just first were introduced to electronic music. I know that you've DJed in the past too, but tell me about your introduction into electronic music, hearing it for the first time and kind of the long story. You can shorten it down a little bit, of course, but to where you are now.
1: Yeah, that could take some time, but I'll try to, I'll try to, I'll try to summarize basically, you know, my love for electronic music specifically, and then how it sort of reemerged as a career for me in the last, you know, 13 years or so. But, um, you know, I was sort of first introduced in, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. I started I started DJing at, at UMass, um, you know, and I became a resident DJ at a, at a club there. Um, called the monkey bar which is still still in existence Um, and I I started to discover even sort of previous that honestly I went to Woodstock uh, 99 and there was the uh, rave tent which had like you know Moby and Chemical Brothers and like all these incredible um, you know incredible electronic acts and you know I I was definitely sort of still into you know all alternative stuff at that time but you know it really sort of spurred my interest, you know, from the band section of, I also used to play drums in a band and I I sort of transitioned um, towards the tail end of of college from my band that I was playing into, into DJing. And being in um, Amherst at UMass, there were a lot of uh, students from New York, New Jersey, and they were all like so far ahead from a club culture perspective and just sort of understood you know, dance music. And I was I was like one of the only DJs sort of playing a lot of the stuff they were hearing in the clubs back in New York and New Jersey. Um and that's sort of what what kicked off like, you know, the dance music portion of what, you know, the electronic dance music portion of sort of what my career was and sort of DJing. And you know, there was, you know, tons of fraternities and sororities and I would do all the you know, the, the date parties and the formals and all these things. And I got a chance to, you know, this is like, you know, Alice DJ and zombie nation and, you know, blue. And when you had to literally you had to burn a CD. Um, so Mm -hmm. I would make these, I would make these, my DJ name was foos and I would make these things called foos jams. And I would have, I would basically do a mix, a live recording of a mix track it out and then burn the cd and you'd have to wait the entire 60 minutes for the cd to get burned so yeah. you know and, and then put a like a label on it and you know i would sell those and it would be sort of a lot of people's first introduction and so a lot of dance music but um yeah that, i think that's sort of the the intro you know and then my love for djing and playing dance music and open format and a little bit of
0: everything That's so cool. So that's really late 90s, early 2000s when that's all happening.
1: Yeah, that's I mean, that's when I started DJing, um, you know, in college and I stayed at UMass sort of post-college. And then I my my career path took a few windy, windy roads. I, you know, I got my master's degree um, in industrial organizational psychology from Springfield College. Um, previous to that, I, I worked at, a. I was a supervisor at a mental health facility, like a locked mental health facility. Mm-hmm. So I've stored, I've stories for days from there. Um, and then, you know, went and got my master's. I worked at mass mutual, which is a fortune 500 company, you know, in the Springfield area. Uh, and then, <laughs> which I felt, which I liked, but it was corporate America. And then a bunch of my friends were in the mortgage business. And, um, one day, one of my best friends, friends showed me his monthly paycheck in the mortgage business. And it was basically what I was making in a year. And, um, I, you know, sort of gave up, you know, my, my career at that point to go into the mortgage business. And then at that point, you know, I was still DJing a bunch and still sort of really interested in, in the business, but I was working like 80, 90 hours a week. Um, you know, I changed professions again, sort of for a third time in like six years. And it it didn't really allow me to, you know, to DJ or do any of these other things for a few years. Now, you know, fast forward two years from that point, you know, two and a half years, and the entire mortgage, you know, industry collapsed. Uh, I went through um, three bankrupt companies. And um, what happened was I started to, you know, find my love for DJing and events and, you know, music again, because I had the time. Um, that I didn't have sort of previously. So I, I, I started a a company with, you know, my former partner, Rich, you know, Rich Hutchinson uh, in the Western Mass area for which, you know, we would sort of take over nightclubs or restaurants and just throw parties. And a lot of that, you know, was electronic music or dance music sort of at that time. Um, And then we did our first concert Which uh, we started off early uh, uh, from an NV Concepts perspective with hip-hop. Because in 2009, 2010, 2011, that backpack hip-hop sound was just exploding. You know, it was Mac Mm -hmm. Miller and J. Cole and Big Sean and Wiz Khalifa. So we sort of saw it before anybody else did, at least in this area, especially from a college perspective. But our first show was with Sammy Adams, who at that time, you know, was a Boston guy and was just exploding. And we, we did our first, you know, soup to nuts, rented out the venue. And it was at the dawn of Facebook advertising. So like literally we had kids from all over new England coming to Springfield mass to see Sammy Adams. And, you know, I looked at my business partner and I was like, this could be a business. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we booked, we booked this guy and, put the whole show together. And, and, you know, I basically took a loan out on my credit card to pay for him. That's how we started, you know, it wasn't like, Hey, here's family money or any of that stuff. We literally, you know, bootstrapped it from the beginning, took a chance, took a chance. And, you know, from there just started booking, you know, we booked Wiz Khalifa sold out like four or five shows with them. J Cole sold out four or five shows with them. Big Sean, uh, at that time, you know, we were still doing, you know, some of the, the parties and, and, and DJing and um, you know, we're bringing in sort of some smaller level electronic artists, but we could see it start to really bubble on the college campuses. And, you know, Rich and I were both UMass alums and we're like we need to sort of do this you know at, at UMass you know bring in as well you know shout out to Mass EDMC um Adam Adam Liederman and Will Saltis, uh who were there and i and it's funny you should you should get with them you should get, i'm going to connect you with Adam because he was the first the first person i know in the entire world to use use the world use the word EDM um, you know, started this company called Mass EDMC back in 2010, and it had electronic dance music club, right? Um, and you know, he's sort of like, he and I got together, and he, he I met him for the very first time. And he's like, you know, if you did Dead Mouse at UMass, it would be unreal. I was like, really? And we started to like look at the data and the, and the, you know, the realistic vision of that happening, and you know, little by little. The the first show that, that us as Envy Concepts and Adam sort of put together actually never happened. It was a show that was – this is a really good story. It was a show that um, we thought the UMass campus would enjoy with two uh, party-oriented acts. One was called LMFAO. The other one was named Steve Aoki. And we had this show called LMFAOki. With LMFAO and Steve Aoki. Now, the unfortunate side of the business is that sometimes you have a vision for something and you're a little bit early, right? You know, like, and unfortunately with this one, we were a little bit early. We had to cancel the show, but we ended up doing Steve Aoki in like a 600 cap room and Amherst, but we canceled LMFAO, Um, you know, lost a bunch of money, but, you know, salvaged it and, you know, still sort of continued. But three months later, LMFAO, you know, came out with Party Rock Anthem and literally was the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. For, yeah. Like we literally missed the whole thing by three months. Like they, by themselves, they were doing like 10,000 tickets pretty much everywhere. And then obviously Steve Aoki, came, you know, went on to be Steve Aoki. But, you know, we were we were risk takers, you know? We, uh, we had a vision for things. And I, I think in a business like this, it's it's not for the faint of heart you know and not for 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 people that you know don't have sort of the the tolerance for risk because you're basically putting your faith into something that you don't really know if it's going to work or not and that's you know it's sort of the very definition of of a a trailblazer right like it's not Mm -hmm. following what everybody else is doing but trying to do something that 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 no one else is doing and taking that that risk and if you look at you know the history of time from you know steel to coal to you know as many industries as there there are it's like you know people were doing things that other people weren't so in this case you know we wanted to bring electronic dance music to colleges um you know that show unfortunately failed but it put us on the map specifically with a lot of agencies um, and we ended up that year also doing a, a big Wiz Khalifa show. And at that time it was the biggest paid show he had done. It was 5,300 people. One of the support acts that was on that show, his name was Mickey facts. He was a, he was a rapper, um, hip hop artist, but he was represented by AM only. So AM only was the original, Sort of dance music agency, you know, founded and headed up by Paul Morris, which later, you know, went on to be Paradigm, which is now Wasserman Music. Right. So the agent went back to um, Am Only and, and was like, "There's something crazy happening, sort of, on college campuses, and you know, we sort of had a formula for for doing these shows." And I get a call like a week later from you know, Paul Morris and, and, and Lee Anderson, Lee Anderson is actually an agent. He he reps Skrillex and Zed and a bunch of massive, massive acts, good, good friend of mine. And they're like, Hey, Tiesto wants to do a college tour. Uh, What do you think about that? Right. And, you know, so I basically sort of help them, you know, shape, you know, first of all, kudos to Tiesto for, like literally recognizing that the college market, this is 2011. So it was probably late 2010 that we started it and the shows were in 2011. But he recognized that this was shifting, dance music was starting to shift to colleges. So his idea was, I'm going to bring this incredible Tiesto show to college campuses. And he did it in a way that was affordable as a promoter, you know, so that there wasn't this massive risk. And I, I think in the end, he, it was a break even or he might even lost money on the whole tour. But it made him so relevant, like on college campuses. And he brought like yeah. Porter, Porter Robinson and Hardwell and like, you know, acts that he really believed in sort of as support acts. So our first like real break from an electronic standpoint in the concert industry was, you know, doing four dates on, on the Tiesto tour and, you know, sort of talking about pricing and marketing and understanding sort of the, the college market. And, and then from there, it was just, it just exploded. It was, you know, yeah. Avicii, Avicii, and Afrojack and Skrillex tours and Zed tours and sort of everyone else. And a big, a big point, I'll let you ask another question here. Sorry. If no, I, you're I good, man. That. This is awesome. Yeah. A big, a big pusher. And I, I give them a lot of credit as well was, was Daglo which, you know, eventually was life and color that was introducing college students to dance music in a way that hadn't been done before for which, you know, they would sell out shows, you know, with a video, like with no talent and a video because the party was just incredible. Um, And everyone just sort of wanted to be part of it. So, you know, I think there was that time period and and this is what I loved about, you know, dance music agents and, and artists and managers. We got out of hip hop because the second that, you know, a Wiz Khalifa or a J Cole got a massive check from Live Nation or AG or whoever it may be to tour, we weren't relevant anymore, you know, so Mm -hmm. I I, I sort of recognize that on the way up, you know, we were, we sort of filled a, a gap for them in some of these college markets, but the second that, you know, a huge tour offer sort of sat in front of them. We weren't part of it. And the difference between that and, and dance music is, you know, like with Tiesto, he's been loyal to us, you know, for helping break him in those college markets and do all the things that, that we do. And there was more a a sense of, of loyalty and this, 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 you know, having history, you know, tour history, a respect to tour history. And, and, and the, the biggest difference was th- they weren't really about just a check. Like they wanted to make sure that the marketing was right, that, you know, the show was going to be promoted correctly, that the hospitality was great, that, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of these guys are not from this country. So it's, you know, they're putting their trust in sort of someone that is is putting on a show representing them and just want, you know, wanted to make sure that it was you know, number one marketed properly, number two, you know, production and hospitality and the brand is right for them. And, you know, we're, we were very, very lucky from a timing perspective to, you know, to sort of hit, you know, we hit the backpack hip hop and that didn't last long for us because it exploded and sort of yeah. got to ma- mainstream America. And now dance music was bubbling and, you know, 2011, 2012, and then it just obviously exploded you know, in that time period, and we were just happen to be part of it on the, you know, on the front end, especially here on the East Coast and the Northeast.
0: Yeah, it's so cool to kind of a hear about some of those risks that you guys took, and kind of going into a path that where it's interesting for me because, like I've said, you know, I like so many people got introduced to dance music in that time frame, my freshman year of college two, or high school. 2011 2012 and it's hard now to think almost of like you know the the shift but if you look back and you mention artists like Wiz Khalifa I think of artists like Time Flies and even like those time flies wow yeah Yeah. like early and and now that you think about it like even like Tayo Cruz and Black Eyed Peas and you know it almost came into the mainstream radio disguised as something else but it had kind of you know the elements of what became the EDM wave and the EDM craze and and hearing you talk about someone like Tiesto kind of not only you know taking a chance and doing something for maybe not as much of a return, but the benefit, like you said, is he kind of welcomed these people into like, hey, this is kind of the future of music in a way. And and nobody knew, you know, if it would actually boom like it did. And for you, being boots on the ground for that throughout that whole thing must have been super surreal. You have obviously been working with these artists since that beginning, you know, start of the 2011, 2012 EDM, you know, boom, if you want to call it. And I think it's really interesting the relationships that you've built, you know, through your job and through what you guys have done and the people you've met and and being that side of dance music that people don't really recognize, right? For us, we go to shows, we see the DJ, it's all great. We don't see the travel, the, the hotel, the promotion, the booking, all that kind of goes into behind the scenes. So Can you speak as someone who's obviously a big fan of all the people that you work with building relationships and working with some of these, working closely with some of these artists, like in Avicii, Hardwell was in Boston this last weekend for the boat cruise and, and kind of watching their careers throughout, you know, the past 10, 15 years and what that's been like.
1: Yeah. I mean, Hardwell specifically, you know, is a, is a really good friend of mine, you know, even outside the industry at this point, we were, one of the first, if not the first in the U S to, to book him. And it it, exactly the question you asked, like we were along his entire, entire ascent from, you know, outside the top 100 to, you know, he was like 40 one year and then he was like seven. And then he was the number one DJ in the world at one point. And, you know, it's actually a perfect example of what I was speaking to earlier, where, you know, we believed in him early and, he stuck with us. And, you know, to this day, it's, you know, if he's coming to the, to the Northeast or to Boston, it's like, Hey, we're doing this show with with Tim and Envy and, and, and big night, you know, it's because we sort of believed in him um, from the front end, but, you know, it's, it's so interesting because when you're in it, you don't, you don't realize sort of what the experience, like Avicii is another great example, right? You know, we did, I don't know, probably, 14 or 15 of each shows. Um, you see behind me, there's this one right here. That's, that was one of the first shows we did in Philadelphia with him completely sold out at a, like a abandoned naval yard, you know, and this is, this is another good story that I, I like to tell as well. Um, you know, we were still very early on in our, you know, larger, um, event career. Like we had, we had done some arena things, but more controlled than arenas that sort of knew how to, you know, knew what they were doing. This was sort of the first time that it was like, here's this empty Naval yard and you have to deal with production and security and, you know, bathrooms and egress and, you know, EMTs and, uh, and you know, beverages and all, all, all these all the different things that sort of like, you know, if you go to an arena are already sort of built in. So, there were there were two sort of like really, really interesting points to, to this particular show. Number one, it was like, man, it was like really early. It was bef- but like levels had just sort of come out and not really blown up yet. But he was just hu- like huge from a college perspective, just like buzzy, but hadn't played a lot of shows. I think this was probably one of his first five or six shows ever in the US. And I I would say probably his biggest. That he had done as a as a headline, other than other than a festival, Um, you know, and and there were two things that happened at that show that were I'll never forget. Number one, you know, there were so many people outside, and we were trying to get them all in, and it it was just sort of impossible. And I I I go up to sort of the front gates, and this is like an older naval yard. I'll never forget. Like I could see they had there were like probably fifteen foot doors that you know, we're kind of like barn door kind of things. And I could see them getting pushed in. And, uh, and, and these kids were so like rowdy to get in, like they were going to push the, these 15 foot doors in, and we we're going to have a ride on our hands. So, <clears throat> and this is, again, one of those things that sort of like, you know, makes or breaks a situation. And and I, I've been very lucky and blessed, in a lot of ways to make good decisions, at least from that perspective, you know, I go up to the front door where the ticket takers and the um, security are. And I'm like, listen, just let everybody in. I was like, don't mm-hmm. scan tickets. Like, cause it was just taking forever to scan and, you know, like the kids were out there for hours. I was like, if we don't let everybody in right now, we're going to have a riot outside. And you know, the show isn't going to happen. Right. So yeah. I, we just let the floodgates open, right? Like just throw your ticket, just get everybody inside. And if there's extra people, it is what it is, but it's, you know, the, the alternative is, you know, they destroy this place and we don't have a show. So that, that was one sort of like, you know, um, turning point for that show. The second was I get a call from the agent, you know, Tim who's a Vici is supposed to go on, you know, maybe, An hour, 90 minutes from, you know, when he called me and he he goes, listen, we have a problem. Tim Avicii is stuck on the tarmac in in Washington, D.C. and the plane's not going anywhere. He's been he was he was stuck on the tarmac for over an hour and he's like, I'm going to have you call him. And it's funny because I still to this day have, you know, Tim Tim Bergling in my phone. So I, you know, I'm going to have you call him and let's figure this out. So I call him while he's still sitting on the plane. He's like, I'm not going. He's like, they basically have said we're not going anywhere. Like, Uh. I'm not going to I'm not going to make the show. So I get back on with the agent and I'm like, listen, I think there was four thousand, five thousand people there. Like the place was raging. We already had an issue for which. know there was potentially going to be a riot just getting in i'm like (laughs) if, if this dude doesn't show up there's going to be a problem right so um you know we got on this is 2011 so it's so crazy how 12 years of technology like how quickly you could find something now versus yeah 12 years ago you know um but you know we we got on and started to call helicopter companies to see if there was a way that you know we could get them there and the first one was like yeah i don't have any helicopters there um, the second one was like, yes, I'm actually at, you know, I think it was Reagan. I don't know exactly what airport he's like, I'm here, you know, but it's going to be $5,000. And I was like, at that point in my career, I was like, Jesus, $5,000. Yeah. Like, you know, so I call, I call the agent <clears throat> and I'm like, um, so good news is we can get him here in time. Bad news is it's $5,000. And he's like, well, you're paying for it. I'm like, How, why am I paying for it? He's like, you have a sold out show. I was like, well, you have a sold out show. He's like, you have a sold out show. So we got in like this argument about who was sort of, sort of paying for it. In the end, we split it. Um, You know, he got on the helicopter and, you know, he made it, he was probably 35 minutes later. So, but, you know, came on, was incredible. The crowd just went, you know, if you if you Google and YouTube, you'll find it Avicii Naval Yards. It was just such a raw environment to sort of see him in um and then the last piece of the story i'll never forget this and this is how early on in his career um it was at the end of the show everyone was like uh v g he he was done and I, I i looked at him i was like tim you got to go up and do an encore and he, he goes what do you mean i was like an, an encore like you got to do another song And he's like oh i didn't know what that meant <laughs> so so he he goes up and does you know another song or two and and smashes it and it was just an absolutely incredible show but it's like moments like that with these artists are what sort of build their relationships and it's really it's really hard to substitute those types of experiences whether it's you know booking hardwell for the first time and you know we did so many shows with them early on like we would drive everywhere so we would go to philadelphia and drive and then we would drive to penn state and we would drive to you know, Albany. So we were in the car with him for three or four hours, right? And yeah. you just sort of really get to know people and when you're not just, hey, I'm booking you and I'll, I'll see you in the green room for five minutes and, you know, say yeah. hi and have a drink, or, right? So back then, you know, we were, because we were doing like all these hard ticket events across the, the Northeast. I mean, listen, it was, I, I don't know if I could do it. Um, I, I It's not that I don't know. I definitely can't do it. Like I did it 10 years ago because it was, absolutely exhausting um you know you're you're on the road a ton and you know the the roller coaster of whether or not you're going to make money or lose money and the amount of time and energy that sort of goes into it at least doing a, you know we were doing i don't know 200 250 hard ticket shows a year where we were renting a venue and doing everything so yeah, from crazy. <laughs> marketing to hospitality to you know, it, it, it's not like, you know, what I do now for big night where I'm, I'm booking. And I I mean, I have incredible people that work for us and incredible teams. Like I sleep at night, like we'll book the yeah. and I don't have to, if there's a problem, I don't worry about anything. Like, yeah, I might hear about it the next day, but you know, back then we, we did everything from handout flyers to, you know, to deal with every single, and single problem. And then the roller coaster from a financial perspective where, you know, if, if your revenue doesn't exceed your expenses, you're in trouble, you know, you you might lose 10,000, you might lose 20,000, like, and then you've got to find ways to to make that up. So, you know, I, I mean, listen, I wouldn't give it up for anything because it's, it's made me, especially the person that I am and help build, you know my relationships and our relationships. And it's why Hardwell comes in, you know, like you did this yeah. weekend has an amazing time. And, you know, so, you know, that, that was sort of like, you know, I don't know if that answered your question, but it was a no. couple of example, examples of like a Hardwell and Avicii, a but I'll just finish with this. It, it was surreal to think back on those times where in a month we were doing shows with Avicii and Hardwell and Siesto and Afrojack's first U.S. you know, show and you know some of the some of the biggest acts literally in the world that like weren't playing anywhere else like festival culture hadn't grown to a point where you could go and see somebody six times or eight times during a year
0: Mm. so it was just it was
1: really surreal for sure
0: yeah i I love that first i love that story the the Picturing you and Avicii's manager arguing over a five thousand dollar helicopter while a vagrant of people is getting rowdier and rowdier is amazing, um, and I love the I love the word you used too. You said it was a very raw Avicii show, which in that time when you know it's crazy that these artists that you mentioned, which are still obviously playing Big Night Live, they're playing Ultra like Tiesto and Hardwell, and it's it's just very cool to see that in a way, like I can almost tell that you, you know, as crazy as that time was and as hectic as it wasn't stressful, I can sense that you almost look back on it like fondly is a different time that you, you were kind of grinding. And what's interesting to me is these moments that you're having with a guy like Avicii in a three hour car ride, you know, I imagine for him, it was all just this whirlwind, like what is going on? This is crazy. This is like, you know, he was coming over, you know, a lot of them for, from, from out of the country and it was almost like while wow, you were figuring everything out, they, these artists were also figuring everything out. And that's probably why, like you mentioned a guy like Hardwell, you know, you came up with him in a way and, and you were in on him early and, you know, you must be, a, and I can tell from, you know, following you on social media, how proud you must be of some of these artists that you've been watching blossom into who they are today and still sell tickets, still be at, you know, the names on the head, you know, headlining main stage and things like that. It's super cool to see. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's an incredible feeling, especially when you're friends with somebody, right? Like you want to win with your friends and when your friends are doing fantastically well and you're 100 percent right. Like we all came up together. We're all learning together and all, you know, as sort of this this EDM boom was was sort of happening. You know, we were living it all together and, you know, had had great relationships. So it was a, it was an amazing time. I wouldn't give it back for anything. Not sure at the point of my lo- that I'm in my life right now that I would, I would necessarily do it again, but yeah. I highly suggest, I mean, listen, people, I say this all the time and, you know, people sort of look at, at where I'm at now. And it's like, this wasn't built overnight. You know, I don't, yeah. you know, the, these situations and relationships it's, it's impossible to substitute, time and experience. And and quite honestly, you know, money, you know, we, we lost a lot of money on some of these things to build relationships sometimes and gain market share, you know, to sort of be where we are today. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to me when people that are sort of new into the industry um, have a perception of, oh, well, you know, he just he just books that show and it you know yeah. it is what it is and it's it's successful and don't realize that it was you know thirteen years of blood sweat and a lot of tears <laughs> you yeah know, to, definitely to, to to sort of get there you know
0: well and it's funny because you say that because I think to the you know someone who just looks at what you do they take a scroll through your social media they know about what you do at big night you know you for an EDM fan have the dream job you're me you're talking you're shaking hands you're eating dinner you're you're hanging out with literally all of the big names that people love and have been following for years. And that was kind of leading into my next question because you've come a long way. Obviously big night is incredible. When I lived in Boston, I mean, the nightlife in Boston is, you know, it goes hand in hand with big night and big night lives. Amazing. All, all that you guys do with the grand, the shows. And, you know, I loved, I went to way too many shows that like first summer that they came back after the, oh, pandemic. that was an
1: incredible man. Yeah. That summer, honestly, that summer felt like when we first started, like I, yeah. we all, we all had that feeling of just incredible. I'll never forget the first show. I uh, actually I'll, I'll post it today. I found the, um, the graphic from two years ago, the first venues we opened were Shrine. And I'll yep. let me just pull pull the graphic up on my phone because it came up on my time hop. So the first six shows that we had back were May 21st, 22nd, 23rd. And then second weekend was 28, 29, 30. So Connecticut opened before Mass did at that time. So yep. it was 50 Cent, Loud Luxury and Tiesto. And then Rick Ross, Diplo and Zed. And that's, <laughs> that's how we came back you know yeah. and then we reopened Boston with like you know cascade jack harlow uh, um you know i think tiesto came back and did boston for us i mean that summer he did all four of our places he called it the yeah. you know the, the, the boston grand slam like you literally yeah. played all four of our places but you know i'll just never forget being you know even on a boat cruise like being back on that first boat yeah and you know it, it was it was surreal a little bit in that you know, just a few months earlier, none of us knew if this was ever going to happen again, or what it was going to look like again, or you know, like those were scary, scary times. Yeah, to, to you know, to be in a live, uh, live event industry for which, you know, there there are no live events.
0: Yeah, nothing was going on. I mean, I moved to Boston in I think uh, November of twenty twenty. And then that first boat cruise I went to, I'll, I'll remember it's, it was Griffin and it was like just being back at a show. It was like, Oh my God. And then sure enough, big night every single day was announcing shows left and right. I was putting them in my calendar, seeing if I was going to be around for them. Um, and that does bring me to a question now because big night is such a well oiled machine and you guys put on all these events and, you know, just top tier hospitality and and promotions and shows. But like i said a little earlier i think a lot of people who like fans who love dance music they go to shows they go to these venues they see all the glitz and glam of it right they see the dj they see an unbelievable event in today's world how you know what are the the trials and tribulations and some of the things that you know don't get noticed behind the scenes similar to like that those stories you were telling about in 2011 in, in your in your job today what are some of the the not uglier sides, but some of the things that don't, don't get light.
1: Yeah. I think from the, you know, and again, you, you touched on it when you first started. So I wear many different hats, um, you know, so from a big night perspective, I'm the VP of talent. So I oversee sort of all the talent, talent booking. So from that perspective, you know, it's, it, it there's a lot, a ton of hours and hours and hours that goes into strategy around you know who were who we want to book you know and at what places and especially in Bo- in Boston and a lot of our markets like things change very very quickly like if you were to if you were to tell me a year ago that you know more than half of the stuff that we're doing at our venues was going to be house music i would say there's no way and now more than half of it is house music right so you know people's tastes change and much like it was in 2011, you, you have to be ahead of the curve, you know, sort of on, on some of these things. And a a more recent situation is like loud luxury, right? Like loud luxury. um, You know, we were, we took a a really early chance on them. We loved them as people. They were, you know, amazing guys. Their managers were awesome. And, you know, we could sort of see that they were, they were going to be big. And we just like Hardwell and Siesto 10 years prior, like we wanted to win with them, Like, we like them. And, you know, so we made them a a resident very early on and, you know, and now, you know, they just, their last tour that they came, you know, they came through, they, you know, they sold out House of Blues and Big Night Live and did like 4,000 tickets. And, you know, they're probably good for five or 6,000 tickets sort of the next time around. So, you know, there's a lot that goes into, you know, and I have an incredible team now that, you know, it's, we have, I basically have three other buyers that, are, are helping with all of the venues, you know, shout out to, to Matt, Kathy and buddy. They're, they're incredible. And then we have, you know, a, an incredible marketing team and a logistics team that handle a lot of these things. But, you know, I think the, 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 the struggles, I mean, listen, I'm not going to lie. The struggles in 2011 versus the struggles now are sort of apples and, and oranges. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas, you know, at that time I was, you know, we were fighting to, to have our name known and build, you know, tour history. And, you know, I think we're big night specifically as well. Like, you know, during that whole time, like I've booked for big night, you know, Avicii was actually the first show I ever did at Shrine. And before we, you know, joined forces, um, you know, prior, I think it was 2019 or so, you know, before that I was doing all their booking. So, you know, uh, we, they were our biggest client and then we sort of decided to, to, to come together, you know, at merging sort of envy and then starting big night talent, our management firm as well. I would say from a a booking perspective, I have a lot less stress. My stress these days more so is in the management side. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, much like you alluded to with some of those early acts, What I wanted to do was, you know, give some of my knowledge and connections and experience. And, you know, after all these years of watching some artists succeed and some artists not and, you know, missteps and branding and music rollouts and things of that effect, you know, the next challenge sort of for me personally was, you know, to start a a, a management Um, company and start to bring some of these artists as as much as we could from a a connections and experience perspective and and develop them so my my stress more so these days is 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 in that and i will say you know i'm extremely proud of our roster and and sort of all of our artists but it is definitely the hardest time in history to break an artist you know and then a lot of these artists were, you know, sort of with us, you know, or came on during the pandemic and, Mm -hmm. you know, for an industry in which touring is such an important part of building a fan base and not having touring available um, and then having touring available and then having it stop again. And then, you know, like there was two and a half years of like, you know, really trying to develop acts was, was difficult. So a yeah. lot of my, a lot of my stress and, you know, where my drive is today, uh, other than, you know, I don't know if we don't have necessarily have to get too deep into it. Other than, other than the, you know, the sports card industry, which started during, yeah, the, yeah. Pandemic. Started during the pandemic because we couldn't do anything, um, you know, but we were managing artists and started that other business. But a majority of my stress and and pain points are, you know, the frustration I get in, you know, doing everything we can humanly do to break our artists in a way that you know we want to and i i like to describe it this may or may not come off in a way that i wanted to i like to describe it as a daily kick in the balls like i literally feel like every day i get up i get kicked in the balls on the artist management side it's your 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 you know it's the same thing i was doing 10 years ago with scratching and clawing to you know get a get a song signed or you know get you know, a, a a collab done with somebody or you know book book some venues with our with our artists like the same like i basically had to restart you know because the the connections you have in the touring world aren't the same necessarily a management world because mm. there's record com- record companies and you know a and r's and you know it's a, it's sort of a little bit of a different world than you know the touring part we understood and knew but that other part we we had to learn and and get those relationships so i I would say a majority of my you know my sort of angst or or stress comes more so from you know the artist management side more so because i believe in every one of our artists and you can have incredible music and you know having a a brand that's aligned with that music and it's you know sometimes it's just a complete crapshoot as to whether or not you make it and You know, I'm doing our best to with, again, an incredible team that is trying to position all of our artists so that when they do break, they're ready, you know, sort of for it. But, you know, I would say now it's more so on that side. But of course, you know, there's always fights with agents and, you know, there's the ever-changing landscape specifically in Boston with new venues coming in and, um, you know, having that loyalty sort of stay with us and the frustration sort of around us. But, you know, I, the stress level on that side, especially because I have incredible people around me that handle a lot of that stuff is much less than it was sort of, sort of 10 years ago. But, yeah. you know, there's, oh, there's always struggles, you know, it's not, yeah, it's not no, really, it's never easy, but,
0: yeah, and it's you bring up the management side of things, and I, just a few more questions. But um, you know, I think it's so interesting, like you said, in today's world with TikTok and social media, and how artists break through and what's hot, what's not, different trends, different genres. I think you know it's interesting to see how even if you just look at electronic music, you know, the way one genre uses TikTok can be completely different than artists in another genre. And what I mean by that is, I think it's obviously it's so important to have a social media presence. And when you look at these artists who are almost like grandfathered in where, you know, a guy like Audion who's playing Big Night this weekend, he's not necessarily using TikTok the way a loud luxury is because, you know, Audion's been a name that's been around. But it's it's interesting just to see. And, and when it comes to artists that you manage and the music and how do you get a breakout, um, you know, it's so it's tough to look at as it's happening, like what makes an artist break out because it's probably tough to pinpoint, OK, they're doing A, a B and C right it's a thing about luck. It's a thing about who's hearing it, trends, and kind of what's going on. So I imagine that's tough to juggle, and and when it comes to you know building up artists,
1: completely, that's the you know the, exactly what you just described is yeah you know and and the 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 toughest part about it is you'll have these like successes where you feel like you're you know building mm-hmm. momentum. And then, you know, something will sort of bring it down and you'll have these successes and, you know, somebody will get a a, a big festival booking or a big record gets signed. And then, you know, it's that's the hardest part for me, because I feel like, you know, from a a talent buying and promoter perspective, I, I have achieved a lot in my career. And I'm 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 literally just hell bent on the management side on you know breaking not just one but all of our artists and having yeah. you know a world class artist management company that has a culture around it as well that you yeah. know is you know speaks to mental health and to. Um, you know, charitable work, you know, we have, you know, DRock yeah. on our, uh, on our, our roster who is heavily, heavily involved with, with fuck, fuck cancer, cancer, which, yeah. which, you know, again, behind me, you can see that. You yeah. Know, love it. Um, you know, I'm heavily, heavily involved with, with them as well. Shout out to, to Julie. Um, You know, we're every year we do a, a fundraiser and, you know, have been involved with them. So, you know, we're different than a lot of management companies in that, you know, we try to bring the, the culture, into everything that is happening with our artists and our staff you know and we're also very lucky because you know we have the big night machine behind us that has you know a multi-million dollar marketing department and you know and pr and um creative and you know all these things sort of behind us so you know i'm confident i'm confident at some point this you know Maybe we'll we'll revisit this in a year from now, and especially post pandemic, because that was you know trying to develop an artist, you know during the yeah. pandemic and post. And you know I feel like there's finally like, I said this today to um, you know one of, one of my coworkers, it you know for the first time we're seeing artists plan out as far out into like Q two and Q three of twenty twenty four, right? Yeah. And like that wasn't happening because. All every everyone was like routing a tour, and then it would have to get completely ditched and rerouted because of COVID, right? And yeah. So I I feel like finally for the first time, literally since March of 2020, which is crazy because that was three years ago, but you know, it's taken three years for the industry to to sort of get back on track, fully
0: bounce back. Yeah,
1: yeah, to fully bounce back, um, on that end.
0: Yeah. Well and it's funny i was saying i was talking this weekend with a friend talking about you know it's not only getting an artist to blow up but then the, to maintain popularity and that's why again bring it full circle to guys you've worked with hardwell you know avicii you know guy like tiesto who's 50 plus years old and he's still you know staying relevant you know the pressure on these artists to continue to to build their brand and i think more so at that when they're in that middle ground and they're trying to kind of get to you know, they're trying to level up and to just continue banging out, you know, songs and, you know, maintaining a fan base and a culture. Um, it's crazy that you've been around for that. I have two last questions for you. One, um, I'm not sure I'm interested on your take on this. I'm not sure how familiar you are with some of the flashback that um, Brooklyn Mirage has gotten after their first weekend with Chris Lake. They had a, like a super overpacked show. People were saying, you know, they they are overselling tickets. Basically, like, you know, I've just been seeing a lot of Um, As someone from New York who goes to Brooklyn Mirage, um, you know, security line super long and a lot of a lot of that type of stuff. I'm curious, you know, from a big night's perspective, how you guys like how you would address something like that. I'm not sure how familiar you are with that situation, but their opening night apparently was was pretty rough.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you're the hottest thing, you know, and quite literally the world. Um, you know, it, 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 bring it back to that Avicii show, right? And and then we didn't, we didn't have like the you know the the right structure in place sort of for dealing with it. That being said, Mirage does. But I mean, all eyes are on you. When now you're the hottest place, and and then yeah. in, in today's age with how quickly people chirp about things, you know, um, you know, I I'm a firm believer in. If, I, if I'm not personally experience it, experiencing it, like, everybody has their own perspective on yeah. this.
0: Everyone's loud on the internet.
1: Yeah, of course. And listen, and I say this all the time because it does happen to us sometimes from a Big Night perspective, like, at Big Night Live. And we never oversell it. We've never oversold our capacity. You know, mm-hmm. we never have. That being said, w- with Big Night Live specifically, everyone wants to be in front, right? Yeah. So, like... There are plenty of other. You've been there. There are plenty. Oh, of I other know the areas, spots.
0: I know the yeah, spots. It,
1: areas to go to, and the complaints that we get are, oh, you oversold. It. There was too many people, and it's like, if you're going to what is the hottest show, you know, and then you want to be in front. Listen, I grew up in a time when you know, I I'll, I'll I tell a story too. Like I went to Wu Tang and Rage Against the Machine, right? And you know what? I was in the pit, and yeah. it was crazy, and there was tons of people around. And it was what it was. I knew what I was getting myself involved in. Right. Like yeah. I went to Woodstock 99. I went to Lollapalooza, like with 80,000, hundred thousand people. I go to EDC every year. I'm not going this year, but like you, you sort of have to like as a consumer and a customer of these things, it, you know have an understanding when you're going to the biggest hottest thing it's probably not going to be comfortable you know yeah it's (laughs) going to be back for sure it's you know it's just the nature of the beast like we've had Mm -hmm. plenty of shows that aren't completely sold out you know no one ever says oh that was amazing like there was so much room. like no one ever talks about those things they just sort of want to talk about the negative but i mean listen when you're when you're opening a venue and you have new staff and you know Brooklyn Mirage was bought it's a new you know there's 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 new people there right so like it's it's one of those things that like when all eyes are on you um you know people are gonna chirp about it and I I don't really like to speak to things that are not that I haven't experienced myself where I feel like something blatant has happened because it's just so easy for one person to say something and for it to just spread like wildfire but my assumption would be yeah, there was probably 6,000 people there all trying to get at the same time. And it's physically impossible to get all those people in and deal with lines and deal with security and all those things. And
0: it was also opening night. Yeah.
1: Opening night as a company, all you can do is, you know, take all that feedback and, and do better. Right. So our response from a big night perspective, and we, we look at this operationally all the time, you know, like we had excision in last year and, you know the shows the shows were completely sold out and you know the base crowd specifically just likes a lot more room right like yeah. you know they're they're it's a it's a different banging. Yeah it's a it's a different demo and a different customer and they, yeah. a lot of those people hadn't been in big night live so there was tons of complaints because it was sold out and they couldn't you know they couldn't move whereas every saturday it's sold out and no one says a word because they're just used to it so yeah. i think you know part of it is people may be going there for the first time. You know, I definitely think opening, opening night, you're, you're going to have hiccups no matter what, no matter if you're the garage or if you're, you know, TD garden or if you're big night live, like you're, you, yeah. just, you, you, it's impossible to predict everything operationally. You know, I, I haven't seen specifically what's happening unless there's something like egregious, you know, yeah, like, yeah. you know, but if it's, I'm if sure, it's, like
0: you said, it's probably just people loud on the internet, you know, just, liking to complain about stuff even people who weren't there are probably complaining i was just interested Uh, and i I think that's a great take um and like you said i'm sure chris lake opening night was a walk in the park compared to woodstock 99 so you know (laughs) i i got one last question then i'm gonna let you go i've held you way too long but again man this has been awesome This, this has been fun um so you're so entrenched in the dance music world. You hang out with all these artists. You obviously have been, you know, putting on these events. I'm curious, what you, Tim, in 2023, what you like to listen to? Like, if you're driving in the car, who do you really like right now? Like, and it could be completely preference. It doesn't necessarily have to be dance music, but you know, what what have you been listening to that that you're really drawn to right now? Um, I think it's a mixture.
1: It's a mixture of stuff. Um, you know, I I absolutely love what. What Skrillex and, and Fred again and Fortat are doing. I, I love it for our industry because it's just brought uh you know this newfound enthusiasm and a new a new crop of fans to dance music. The fact that you know they can headline MSG and Coachella and you know, these are dance music artists and musically obviously what Sunny Sonny specifically does and um Fred again, you know, it's 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 pretty incredible. I mean, I, I, I really love, um, you know, house music and tech house, you know, we have, we have, um, you know, an artist on our roster, Jake Shore drive that mm-hmm. is doing like hectic. 90s. Yeah. 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 So like nineties, two thousands infused house music, you know, he did, um, you know, magic stick from mm-hmm. 50 cent and then just yep. hectic. So that kind of hits me in the, you know, in the, yeah. in the, in the heartstrings because I grew up in that era. So I, yeah. I, blending I, two I, worlds. I really, I really, really love that. You know, I, I feel like, you know, the, the world sort of under Rufus and sort of this, this melodic um, sound this, you know, now this like stutter house sound that's that's sort of happening is really dope. You know, there's this, it's Murph, it's Murph kid who's, you know, blowing up a little bit and, you know, sort of that sound. Uh, I, I get this question asked a lot and it's, you know, I, I um and people are like, well, how do you discover music? I, I mean, Spotify just changed changed my entire world because the fact that you know you could basically pull up endless numbers of playlists and just discover music for which you, you had no idea. Like, I'll just put playlists on in the background, you know, whether it be you know, and I'll I won't discriminate. You know, it's dance music typically, but I'll you know I'll put on everything from. The Night Rider one to housework right and yeah and everything in between and man, and you know and then just sort of listen through and all of a sudden a song will hit I'll be like oh who's that that's yeah. cool like and then I'll go and look and then I'll follow them or you know sort of discover you know more more music but you know my tastes my tastes are definitely wi- wide wide and range like I still love and enjoy a a good big room set and you know lo- love love I saw you at I saw
0: you were at Eric Pritz at uh, Ultra.
1: Yes, that was incredible. I mean, his hollow, his hollow, uh, yeah, the hollow thing is just unbelievable. Um, you know, so sometimes it's also not just the music, but the everything, the visual pieces that sort of surround it that are extremely attractive to me as well. You know, but I went, I literally went from Hardwell's, um, surprise throwback classic set to, you know, the Eric Pridd's hollow set, right? So
0: yeah.
1: I think it kind of gives you like the, you know, yeah. the spread of, of what I like and what I'm, you know, what I'm listening to. And then if not, I'm, I'm always a old school hip hop fan. Always, always have been. So I'll throw some of that, that on as well.
0: I love it, man. Listen, I, like I said, lived in Boston for two years, big night. What you guys do is awesome. Um, so happy. We got you on the podcast, man. Like I'm sure we could go, mu- we could make this like a Joe Rogan podcast and go for like three hours just telling stories. I could, I could listen all day, but Tim Benito, guys, from Big Night and Envy Concepts. Really appreciate your time, man. This was super fun and super cool talking with you. Love it. Thanks
1: for having me on. It was well done. Great questions. And yeah, I felt felt like I could do this for two more hours. And
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll we'll get you back a, on.
1: Yeah, and I'll connect you to a couple more potential guests. I got some ideas for you. So
0: Awesome. Guys, this was episode 59 of the XU Podcast with Tim Benito. We'll see you next week.